Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Is that the button? All right. All right, go ahead and move back to your seats, everyone. Welcome, welcome. We are... uh, we're marching towards the end of our series, The Human God, uh, where we've been allowing the Gospel of Mark uh, to, to offer us a portrait of Jesus as um, he who is all in on being human and all in on being God, that it's not this kind of schizophrenic back and forth like sometimes Jesus does human things and sometimes Jesus does God things, um, but whenever we see Jesus moving through the world, however he's interacting with people, we're saying that's actually what God is like. Um, And so we're almost done. Uh, um, As Katie said, next week we're going to be kind of meditating on the the cross, doing our Good Friday immersive gathering on the Palm Sunday. I hope that's not too confusing for anyone. And then um, we'll do Easter, and then we're done with the Gospel of Mark. And I'm actually really excited for what I feel like the Lord's got uh, coming up for us next. So um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right into uh, what he has for us today. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, um, that you are with us, um, that you are for us, that you are a God who turns curses into blessings, that you are a God who has promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will be with us to the end of the age. And Lord, we come into this place to be reminded of those uh, truths that are deepest and most eternal. That as we skip along the surface of our lives through the rest of the week with the very normal things of doing laundry and paying taxes, um, those things that in and of themselves there's nothing wrong with, um, so often we feel the temptation to believe that that is all there is to life. And Father, I pray as we come into this place, this other space in our lives, this sacred space, that you would remind us of what is really real what is eternally true about you. And because it's true about you, it becomes true of us as we continue to be transformed evermore into the likeness of Christ. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's where we're going today. The human God is taken, blessed, broken, and given for the salvation of the whole world. All of Matthew has been marching towards this final confrontation between the kingdom of God and the powers and principalities. And we've talked about the powers and principalities that we see mentioned time and again in Scripture is a reference to kind of the unholy trinity that coordinates against the kingdom of God, the flesh, the enemy, and the world. So it may be the corrupt human institutions that are... um, that work specifically to oppress certain groups of people in order to maintain a sense of power and privilege. It's talking about um, the kingdom or the empire of the Satan, the accuser, um, who whispers in the ear of humanity and twists and warps our self-understanding, twists and warps our understanding of what God desires for us. 
um, in order to have us deviate from the work of God. And that Jesus, the whole Gospel of Mark, again, remember I said very, very much at the beginning, someone told me it's helpful to think of the Gospel of Mark as kind of like a horror suspense film. It's, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of demons, and you, know, you kind of maybe list, read it while you're listening to the Stranger Things soundtrack and like allow it to be creepy because that's what it really is. It's the confrontation of good and evil. And so Jesus, in this moment, has now been marching into Jerusalem. Remember, he's been hovering kind of on the outskirts of Judea for most of his ministry. Uh, but now he's getting ready for this final confrontation. So he enters um, the city of Jerusalem through the back gate, riding on a colt. The people come alongside of him, and they shout, and they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. They see him as the promised Messiah, standing over and against Caesar, entering in to the city from the main gate. Um, he promptly goes to the temple and he clears out all the, the money chargers, these people that had complicated the process of drawing close to God um, to say, I'm reclaiming this space for all people to draw near to me. He enters into these dialogues with some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, kind of challenging them on their assumptions of what are the true values of God. And as Bree talked to us last week in one of those really wonderful little moments of engaging with one of the teachers of the law, speaking of the greatest commandment being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And very much like it is love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and as Jesus continues to walk around the city, he's predicting the fall of not just the city of Jerusalem, but the fall of Rome. So some of those, um, those passages that for some of you that grew up in a kind of dispensationalist theology that are kind of predicting the end times, uh, you know, kind of uh, like Mark 10, 11, 12, kind of in there. What he's really doing is he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem, which we know historically actually happened. Um, that in 67 AD, there's a revolt against the Roman Empire. Um, they temporarily uh, kind of reclaim the city of Jerusalem, the Jews do, and then the siege of Rome or the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, and they flatten the entire city. Not one stone is laid upon it another. And so all of Jesus' prophecies there actually come true, but it happened in the first century. And the little hint there that he says is, all of, none of you will pass away until you've seen these things happen. Um, so it's less about uh, some sort of uh, final cosmic confrontation, although there are prophecies in scriptures about that elsewhere, but those specific passages where Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem was very historically uh, bound and is something that came true. Um, from that time, um, Jesus, there's another story where Jesus is um, eating with his disciples. This woman comes in with an alabaster jar of oil that she breaks over his feet. She anoints him. Um, she wipes his feet with her hair, and they're all incensed because, like us, they're very good practical social justice warriors, and like, what are you doing? Like, that money could have been totally used to feed the poor, and Jesus says, okay, slow down. Like, there's, he says the really fascinating line, he says, the poor will always be with you, and there's something to be done about that, but she is preparing me for this next thing. This is a beautiful thing that she's doing, kind of challenging some of our pragmatic theology. And that brings us to today's story uh, in Mark chapter 14, uh, one that we call uh, the Last Supper. So it's going to be up on the screen. Um, you can read along, but I would also encourage you, if you're, if you're a good listener, uh, to close your eyes, to allow this story to wash over you um, and to, to allow your divine imagination to kind of be ignited by the Spirit to see what's happening in this narrative. So this is Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 12 to 26.
On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me, which I think is very normal what all of us would do. Be like, am I in the clear here, or is it the next person? Um, it is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is a very key moment in the story of Jesus. It's important for us, first of all, to understand the context of what's happening here. What is this Passover meal Represent. How many of you have participated in a Passover meal or a Seder meal of some kind? Excellent, 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 excellent. Um, you, you might come from a tradition, tradition where it's called Maundy Thursday. Anybody celebrate Maundy Thursday? It was Maundy. I don't know what Maundy means. I always, when I was a kid, I thought it was, I thought it was Monday Thursday when I was a kid. And I didn't know, that, well, actually wasn't helpful because that doesn't mean anything. But today is Monday Thursday and then there's Good Friday, right? So we celebrate Monday through Thursday, then we do Good Friday. Um, so this is, uh, this is kind of one of the key festivals in the Jewish tradition, and it still is. Um, and it's, it's a, the festival that reminds Israel of God delivering them from Egypt um, into the desert for 40 years and then eventually approaching the promised land. So it's very much about uh, going from slavery to freedom, from death into new life. But one of the most fascinating things, I think, for me, that I think is quite helpful for us to understand when it comes to festivals, and how we tend to differ um, from the Jewish tradition, is the word remembrance, okay? So a lot of times, we do things to remember something, um, and, and this is what really what we're going to be looking at today with Holy Communion or the Eucharist. And so when we say remember something, we're like, do you remember when this thing happened once upon a time and wasn't that interesting? That's what we mean when we talk about remembering. Um, in Judaism, remembrance means to recall what happened in the past in such a way that you're drawing it into the present so that it can become true again. Um, so remembrance is, is, is it's an active invitation 
for the truth of who God was for our ancestors to become true again. So if you've ever participated in that Seder meal, you know that a lot of it is continually, it's telling the story of the deliverance from Egypt, but it's doing it in a way that we're bringing it back into the present moment through word and especially through symbol. Um, So many of you perhaps grew up, um, I, I find that there tends to be uh, kind of one of two camps when it comes to the Last Supper, when it comes to Eucharist. Uh, some of y'all Baptists, it was like, we do this in remembrance, so that means um, we eat the cracker, right? And the juice, because heaven forbid, it should be alcoholic, because, you know, Jesus didn't actually drink alcohol, he just turned it into grape juice, and it was delicious. We have organic grape juice today, by the way, so you're welcome. Um, but when I remember, all I'm doing is I'm remembering something that happened 2,000 years ago that seems interesting and maybe should inspire me in some way. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, um, some people in my own tradition, the Anglican tradition, you might find this in the Orthodox or the Catholic tradition sometimes, it's magic. And, and it's like, if we do all the words right and we do the, the magic thing, then this, this literally turns into the body and blood of Christ and then we start fighting about when does it do that? As soon as it goes into my mouth? Or is it like, there's some way, this is the... Like Jesus, it turns into Jesus right here, or it's like here. It's the argument of transubstantiation for those of you uh, who are in the know. And so there's this kind of spectrum of, uh, you know, memory or magic. It's always like memory or magic. That's where we tend to go. But what we're being invited into, and I think this is the properly Jewish way of understanding uh, sacred acts or sacraments, is uh, mystery. What we're participating in is a mystery that as we recall what God has done in the past, through action, it does something to us in the present moment. And so this unleavened bread that was central to the Passover meal um, reminded Israel of their hasty deliverance from Pharaoh and from Egypt. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, as all good Jews would do, because newsflash, Jesus was Jewish. I don't know if you knew that. It's very important to the story that you know this, that Jesus is Jewish, and he's a good Jew, and he does lots of Jewish things, like celebrating the Passover. And so it's not just Jesus having a Thursday night meal with his friends and being like, you know what, this is great. What we're doing here, this is cool. Does anybody have like a cup of wine, maybe, or some bread? I have an idea. No, they're, they're, they're in this like ancient um, tradition that they're ancestors have participated in for hundreds of years and would continue to do so. But the fascinating thing about the Passover meal is that Jesus takes these symbols that they would have been well acquainted with, and he begins to, the fancy term is recapitulate or reimagine what they mean to kind of be fulfilled in who he is. So if you've ever passed, you've taken part in that Seder meal, you know, um, for example, there's one piece of the bread um, that's wrapped up and hidden as if it's been buried. Um, and of the four cups of wine that you're to drink in that, which you do, Manischewitz, any Manischewitz fans? One person, and that's exactly how many it should be because it's gross. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like sugar water. Ugh. But I don't know if Jesus used Manischewitz. Again, Jesus would never have possibly drank in alcohol. Um, he was a good little Southern Baptist. Um, but there's also, of those four cups that are used in the Passover meal, there was always a cup that was kind of left aside that would never be touched. And even in the day, rabbis would never... They had different theories as to why this had become part of the tradition, but they never really came to a consensus. So for hundreds of years, Jews were celebrating this 
this meal of remembrance of being delivered from Pharaoh and Egypt into freedom in the promised land through Moses. Um, And there was this piece of bread that was left over and this cup that was left over. And so when Jesus stands up and he says this, he takes the bread, he breaks it and gives thanks for it. He says, this piece of bread that's been on the table for hundreds of years, that's me. And this cup that's been sitting at the end of the table for hundreds of years, that's me. He's demonstrating to them, I am the fulfillment of this radical story of moving from death to life, from slavery into freedom. And so what Jesus is doing in a very particular way in this moment as he's positing himself as the new Moses who's about to go ahead of the new Israel. Remember, 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And that this Moses is about to go into conflict with the empire. That were for the old Moses, it was Pharaoh. Um, In the new uh, empire, it's Caesar, it's Pontius Pilate, um, it's Satan himself. And so Jesus is reenacting those symbols of the Passover meal in such a way that it gives a new vitality to what this thing meant to them. But it was also a way for them to kind of enter in symbolically to what Jesus was about to do in Jerusalem. And fascinatingly enough, even as Mark is very briefly mentions here, it's where they normally sacrifice the Passover lamb. Not only do we see Jesus as the new Moses, but we also see Jesus as that lamb. Um, And in Revelation, there's an amazing line that says, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That not only um, was that Passover lamb sacrificed, you know, in the moment of the Passover and in those years of remembrance, but there was, a, there was a deeper reality to that, that Jesus has always, is always, and will always be the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And of course, by the end of the story, we see the disciples, they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand necessarily what is about to happen because they, like us, are still stuck in this mentality that if you want to save the world, you have to bring a bigger stick. If, you, if you're going to be king, you have to approach this with a sense of war-mongering. You have to gather together a military, an army, and you have to fight against the oppressors. And even like I said, like a generation after Jesus, we see this. Someone else coming along saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm God's promised true king, and I'm going to lead the revolution that's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel. And it works for about three years. And the disciples, just like uh, us, are stuck in that mentality. Like, if we're going to save the world, we're going to do it through power and privilege. We're going to do it through legislation and overcoming our enemies. How do we think God is going to save the world? We gaze upon the Lamb who has been slain since the creation of the world. This is how God has always intended to do things. And it's because the human God offers himself in obedience, allows the powers and principalities to do their worst, and passes through death in order to rebirth the world. This amazing little line that becomes part of, uh, part of our liturgical worship for almost 2,000 years now, we find that it says in verse 27, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. 
And so in that, we see this Christ pattern to be taken, um, to be blessed, to be broken, and to be given. And that is what Jesus is trying to communicate to them symbolically is what he is about to do. So first, what does it mean to be taken? Um, Henry Nouwen posits that perhaps a a better word than taken would be chosen. Um, Jesus is chosen for this task, that God knows how the world needs to be saved. Uh, But Jesus is the only one that is truly worthy of this. You remember in Revelation 5, which we looked at a couple months ago, um, in this vision John has, he sees the scroll that's God's plan to rescue the world, but everyone in heaven and earth is lamenting because nobody is worthy of opening up the scroll. Everyone's still kind of tainted. Everyone still kind of has their views of how to save the world, and they're not really listening to God's radical alternative plan. And then comes this this lamb who has been slain since the creation of the world, and everyone begins to sing, you are worthy to take the scroll, to unveil it, to reveal God's plan. So Jesus is taken in the sense that Jesus is chosen because he is the only one that is worthy of actually saving the world. In fact, for any of the rest of us to take upon ourselves that project to save the world, we usually mess it up. This is what we see, again, time and again through history, right? I mean, it's almost laughable that we now call World War I the war to end all wars. When are we going to realize that the way that we've been going about this thing doesn't actually work? So Jesus is taken or chosen. Secondarily, he's blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to have someone speak over you the the truest, deepest, most pure things about you so that you remember that the surface things of your life are not actually the truest things. And so we see this in Jesus. He's chosen. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He grows up in relative obscurity, and then he comes to John the Baptist to to be baptized, right? And the moment that he goes under the water and he comes up, what happens is the heavens kind of open up, and this dove descends upon Jesus, and God speaks and says, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We see this image of the Trinity right there um, in the Gospels, echoing the first chapter of Genesis. So Jesus is blessed by God. Jesus is given a name. Jesus is proclaimed to be worthy of that name that brings him out of obscurity into this special place he's made holy. So Jesus is taken, he's blessed, and then Jesus is broken. What does that mean for Jesus to be broken? One of our views of God that we have to let go of is that God is so perfect and holy and immutable that God can't possibly draw close to us because of our stuff. Like, you've got human cuties, and God doesn't really like you, and he doesn't want to get too close to you. He needs an intermediary to get close to you because he would compromise his godness in some strange way um, if he was to get near us. And this God doesn't feel feelings. Um, This God kind of lives up on this mountaintop of perfection. Oh, my goodness. That's Whenever I speak heresy, this is usually the monitor for that. Um, And we have to radically, so when we think about God, and we're thinking much more from Greek philosophy, the God who is all the omnis, and he's immutable, and he can't come close to us because he's so perfect. Um, we have a hard time with Jesus as the image of God because we see Jesus doing all the wrong things. 
Jesus draws very close to us. He's very happy to be up in the mess of our lives. And indeed, the Pharisees are always calling him out for this. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? You're going to get their sin cooties on you, and you're supposed to be a holy man. And Jesus says, no, it's my holiness that actually gives me permission to draw really close to those people who need it the most. So what do we see in Jesus? That Jesus, his whole persona as man, as God, is to be broken by the experiences of being a human being. That Jesus experiences the brokenness of being wounded like we are wounded by life. But interestingly enough, for Jesus to be broken means that Jesus is broken open to enlarge the space for us to come into communion with God. This is what we mean by heaven. We mean communion. We need drawing close, being in relationship with God. And conversely, by hell, what do we mean? We mean alienation. We mean isolation. We mean being far from God. And so one of the ways that God decides, the way that God decides to save the world is to break God's self open in our presence in order to welcome us into that woundedness that it begins to bless our own woundedness and we experience communion in that place. And finally, Jesus is given. Jesus is given to us. His life is offered to us as new life. That we find ourselves welcomed into the gap that is in the God self because of this brokenness. And we find that we are given new life there. That our brokenness is no longer uh, something that compromises us, but actually becomes the very place where we meet the healing hand of God in our lives. And I think that's what's so radical about this symbol of the Holy Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Table, Lord's Supper, whatever you grew up calling it, is it becomes this sacred act that helps us to enter into this reality of the God who has been taken, blessed, broken, and given to us in a way that it's more than just us talking about it. But what I think what's so radical, what happens at the Lord's table, is that we become like Christ. If we are Christians, little Christs, what is true of him becomes true of us. And so part of our coming to the table is taking upon ourselves that same Christ pattern, that you have been chosen, you have been blessed, you have been broken, and you have been given to the world. And that's a radical responsibility for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. That's the radical responsibility that we've been given, that when we come to the table together, we're taking into ourselves the reality of Christ who says, this is my blood that was shed for you. This is my body which was broken for you. And as we take that into ourselves, we become more and more part of Christ. And so what I want to do before we come to the table is I want, I want us to kind of just sit in stillness with those, those four moves that Jesus gives us through Holy Communion that typify who he really is and to recognize that that is the pattern to which we have been called. So I want you to close your eyes and just kind of hold your hands out in front of you in a posture of receptivity. We often talk about here how um, our, our body kind of leads our mind and our hearts, that sometimes when we're closed off physically, it means that we're also closed off to God emotionally or spiritually or mentally. And I'm going to speak these four phrases over you. 
And I just want you to see what is it that God does to you? What is God inviting you to dwell on, uh, to inhabit perhaps a little bit deeper? To understand this is what it means to come to the table. Firstly, you have been chosen. You have been chosen in the way that God brought you out of the murky depths, that God called you out of the darkness, that God's love for you is a special fondness that he has when he looks upon you, he sees his child worthy of his presence, worthy of being close to him. But not only have you been chosen, you have been blessed. That as God has called you forth from the murky depths, he has given you a name. He has spoken over you since the creation of the world. This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am already well pleased that God speaks his fondness over you to remind you of who you truly belong to. You have been chosen, you have been blessed, but you have also been broken. And so much of the shame and guilt that you carry in your life is because you feel like that brokenness exempts you from the presence of God. That that brokenness means that you are far from God, that you are not worthy of God's love. But to be broken is first of all to realize to fully realize your humanity, the same humanity that God took upon God's self in Christ. And to recognize and to name your brokenness allows your wounds to become the space where you encounter God, the God who knows what it feels like to be a human being. And not only does God bring healing to your brokenness, but your wounds become the healing space for other people, the people that God has blessed you with. That as you cry out, me too, as you share openly and without shame about your brokenness, you welcome other people into the full experience of being a human being and in doing so meeting the God who is also broken. So you have been chosen, you have been blessed, you have been broken, and you have been given. What does it mean for you to have been given? It means that your life has purpose. Your life now has a sense of meaning. And as that brokenness is converted into healing, as that brokenness is offered to the world, you find solidarity with others. You begin to recognize that you have been made 
for other people. You have been made for love. You have been made to be constantly expanded and enlarged by being broken by the reality of this world, but in such a way that it welcomes other people into your presence, that you can offer them the special fondness that God has for each one of us so that they too might find themselves chosen and blessed and broken and given. This is the truth of who you are in Christ. This is the pattern to which you have been called. I'm going to invite forward some of our friends who are going to be offering us uh, the Eucharist today. What we do when we celebrate Holy Communion is that we're doing what our Jewish ancestors did with Passover. That when Jesus says, do this in the remembrance of me, we're remembering what was true in the past so that it can be true today. That when we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, we're saying, yes, in that same moment that you were chosen, that you were blessed, that you were broken, you were given 2,000 years ago on the cross, I also invite you to do that in me today. And this is why it's mystery. I can't explain the mechanics of it. I don't know what the chemistry is in any of this. I just know something happens when we come to the table. Something happens to us beyond words when we step into sacred action to participate in what the actions that Jesus has called us to, that we look a little bit more like him. We inhabit the reality of Jesus a little bit more than we did when we first entered this space. Because our faith, the Christian faith, is not one merely of ideas and concepts, but it's one of participation, that we confess what we believe, and we confess our unbelief as we approach the table. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to pray together, and then I'm going to invite you forward, starting in the first rows and working your way back. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, for all your goodness and your love. When when we turned away, you did not reject us. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. On the night before he died, he came to table with his friends, and taking bread, he gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant 
which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Father, send your Holy Spirit on us now. May this bread and this wine be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the song of heaven forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and the mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.